You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. of a series that is called Symposco, and we're walking through the book of 2 Timothy. So we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 again today, so if you have your Bibles or your Crossroads Grace app, you want to get a head start on that, you can jump there right now. Luz, go ahead and put that uh, link in there for my friends online. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we'll be at. And as you find that, what you're going to see is that I'm going to remind you that we're in 2 Timothy, which is not really a book, but it's a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his friend and his mentee, Timothy, who was, as we'll find out, was, was a pastor of a church in a certain city. And, and several times throughout this letter, you're going to hear Paul tell Timothy, join with me in suffering. Now, the word that Paul uses for suffering is very intentional. It's the word symposco, which means to suffer with. In other words, Paul is, is not telling Timothy, hey, just suffer alone, dude. You're on your own. Good luck with that whole thing. Rather, he's saying the exact opposite. He said, you're supposed to share your burdens with others. You're supposed to share your suffering with other people. Because the life of a Christian was never meant to be lived alone. Through good times, through bad times, through in-between times, we are to have people to journey that life with us so that we know that we're not alone. So Paul is urging Timothy, hey, suffer with me in some different ways. And in week one, we talked about how Paul says, I want you to suffer for the gospel with me. So suffer for the gospel of Jesus. And specifically, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as a prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the suffering means for the cause of Christ. Suffering for the cause of Christ means that we do so for the message of Jesus' love, his forgiveness, and his mercy, and that forgiveness is only found through him. But understanding its worth, we understand that we will suffer for the gospel because of what Jesus suffered for us. Now, last week, we actually looked at another thing that says that Paul directed us to suffer through some different lenses, which, which means that we can suffer, which will lead us to a bigger purpose if we can see that there's a bigger picture that's happening that we just can't see. Even though that could be hard, it still is what Paul has called us to say. And he, he's actually telling us what he would reiterate in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a verse that you might have heard of before. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those that love him, who have been called according to his purposes. So what this means is that our suffering can have purpose to it if we allow God to use it, no matter what, no matter what it might be. Which then brings us to this week, in the week three of the series. And I said, uh, Timothy is, is being written, uh, is, is, is being pastored, he's pastoring this church in the city called Ephesus when Paul writes him this letter. And Paul is writing to him as, he, as Paul sits in prison and he's awaiting his eventual death by the Romans in 67 AD. So the fact that Paul is speaking of suffering is not an abstract thought for him, but it is his reality right here in this moment, which is so hard for us to comprehend in our minds in so many different ways because we think that Paul is like larger than life. I mean, he's a massive figure in the Christian faith. I mean, the guy wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So you would think he'd have God on speed dial or on one of his favorites on his phone because, I mean, he was the man, but yet it says he still suffers. And this is why suffering is really so multifaceted and really is, is hard to unravel when we truly think about it. 
Because there's a part of us that thinks that when we become a Christian, when we start to follow Jesus, that somehow we become immune to suffering. That once we start following Jesus, suffering mysteriously disappears like eczema in the summer for those of you with skin problems, right? I mean, it's just all of a sudden. But, or, or maybe you've heard this from some health and wealth pastors, that if you have enough faith, that that faith will make you healthy and wealthy and suffering free. Yet the problem with that ideology is that it's not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do you find that, because if you could sit down with, have a podcast interview with a few people in the Bible, I don't know, David, Esther, Moses, Samson, Mary, Peter, Ruth, any of them, they would tell you that that health and wealth stuff is just absolutely crazy. It's not even true, because their lives were anything but healthy and wealthy or easy. In fact, they suffered a lot, intense suffering, yet despite all that suffering, they maintained their faith. And, And then there's another side of suffering, And it's the side of suffering when people suffer for things that they had nothing to do with, or maybe somebody did to them, that they didn't do something, something was done to them. They suffer for reasons that only God knows the reasons why for, and they would never even wish what they're going through on their their worst enemy, but yet they stay focused on Jesus nonetheless. But then there are other people that, that suffer that actually crave suffering. It's the craziest thing, they crave it. You might know someone like this. These are the people that have to have something chaotic going on in their life or they cannot function. Do you know people like this? Like like life is good and, and things are great, but all of a sudden they have to sabotage their life to make something bad happen so they can wrap themselves up in their sabotage blanket, in their suffering blanket, you know? And then there's the hypersensitive people to suffering where anything is suffering that they think that not being able to say Merry Christmas at Walmart is unbelievable suffering. Or when someone doesn't like your Bible verse post on Instagram, gut-wrenching suffering, how could you do this to me, right? But then there's another type of suffering. It's a suffering we don't like to talk about, but it's suffering that we bring on ourselves. It's when we walk away from God and we choose things that aren't right, but they're very, very harmful. And throughout the series, we've actually been looking at different people's stories, stories of Simposco, suffering with others. And so today, I want you to hear from my friend Scott. It's a, Scott, it's a story about Scott's life where he chose to make some decisions in his youth that impacted the rest of his life. But it's also a story about how he found community in some of the most un, un, unthinkable areas, or maybe you couldn't even imagine this happening, but yet those people were there for him during the hardest moments of his life. So I want you to take a listen to Scott's story. It was around the time that I got to high school that I started to really get uncomfortable with who I was as a person. Growing up in church didn't really, it didn't fix all of my issues like I had been led to believe. And and the way that I addressed those was drinking my freshman year to the point where it got me pulled from ripping high. Graduated just by the hair of my chin, no plans for college. And so really at 18, it turned into full-time party, which is also at 18 when I got my first prescription of Vicodin. Being unemployed and carrying a Vicodin uh, addiction can be pretty expensive. Uh, So that that led me to couch surfing a bit when I was 18 years old, to graduating, as I would call it, from Vicodin to something much cheaper, and, and that something was heroin. That was when I gave up on my belief in Christianity, was at 20 years old, and went full force into that and just kind of decided that I was gonna live my life in a destructive way. I used to think that I'd be dead before I was 24. I had been through a rehab again, and this time it was a year-long Christian rehab, and and I had made a lot of progress. I really jump-started my whole life and and jumped into a relationship that was really unhealthy for me. When I started drinking, that relationship crumbled, and now that I had nothing left, 
I was 24. That was the age that I thought I was gonna die anyway. To supply my addiction, I was shoplifting from stores, selling things for cheap to dealers just to try to supply myself with what I thought I needed, using methamphetamine to stay up for three, four days at a time so that I could try to make more money. I was at a Target and I was using heroin in the bathroom at a Target when I overdosed. And that was one of those moments that I thought I really don't wanna die. I'd love to tell you that it was life-changing right then and there, but it took a little bit more beating myself up which ended up leading me to jail. I was sitting in a jail cell, and I remember my cellmate, his name is Derek, and he'd get visitors all the time and, and letters, and I really didn't have anything, and so I remember the very first prayer that I prayed in jail was, God, if you're actually real, uh, just let me get a letter or, or a visit. And that day, somebody random slid a blue Bible under my cell door. I remember I opened that thing uh, like a lot of people do when they first get a Bible and it's, okay, my life verse is the one that I land on uh, right now, right? And so I, I did the whole finger and dropped my finger down and I, I ended up at Psalm 116. I was in chains and you freed me. I was dying and you rescued me. Uh, these men are all liars. God, who, who can restore me, only you can. And I remember thinking, that is exactly my situation right now. My cellie, uh, Derek, he came to Christ in that cell with me. We went out and we were trying to convince all these, you know, hardened criminals to join a prayer circle. I built some really long-lasting relationships sitting in a jail cell, which is somewhere that I never thought I would. That started to build this community for me to where when I got released, a lot of these people I continued to write and I continued to talk to. God just continued to bless my life. I moved to San Jose. On my weekends, I would I'd go out and I would feed the homeless and, and I just felt like God was calling me to more of that uh, and less about the sales world. And that's where I took a job working for a not-for-profit and really began a new career in that. When I look back now, I, I just see where God pulled me out of literally the depths of despair. I went from homeless to homeowner. I have a beautiful wife and, and daughters. I, I work for a wonderful organization that feeds the homeless. God has just completely turned my life around and used what I thought was broken. Completely and totally lost and broken. A failure is what I used to call myself to somebody who, who I enjoy being alive today. I enjoy looking in the mirror. I enjoy the life that I have been given by God. And it's, it's just a testament to his grace. Scott. Love Scott's story. Scott works for the Modesto Gospel Mission. Get to see him quite often, and he is um, an amazing man of God. A powerful testimony to what God can do through difficult suffering that was brought on by ourselves, but that he still can redeem. He can still restore anything through him. And Scott learned like, the power of some Pasco in a jail cell with a celly, that, that suffering as a believer is never to be done alone, even if you're in a jail cell. Scott was able to see that. Now, over the years, um, I, I've learned to have to endure suffering pretty well. <laughs> I mean, after all, I am a Cincinnati Reds and Bengals fan, so I take a lot of suffering as it is, but I will tell you, go Padres. Yeah, go Padres, okay? Uh, you don't know, the Padres beat the Dodgers, that's a good thing, okay, all right? My guy from Indiana, he knows that, it's all good, so wherever he's at, so anyway. Uh, but I struggle with suffering one thing, okay? I can endure suffering for a little bit. One thing I start, struggle with with suffering is when I struggle for doing something that's right. Perhaps it's the firstborn in me, type A+. Plus. It's the type that I, wanna, that I wanna follow all the rules. I'm not sure what it is, but when I do something that's right, and then I get ridiculed, and then I suffer for doing it's right, 
I'll tell you what, that's when it's really hard for me to suffer. I mean, I put my card away at Target, people, when I'm done, okay? I put it away, I do the right thing, but yet I'm the truck. I get applause for that, but not the Padres and the Dodgers. Anyway, okay, right? But I put my truck, but, but then the cart, it finds my truck somehow, the runaway cart, just rams in the side of it. I, I, I'll tell you what, I signal when I change lanes, I'll even wave to say thank you for letting me in, while some guy in front of me cuts me off, nearly hits me. And then he's the one that sneaks through the red light to be able to get through it. So I get stuck by the train and have to sit there for four days until I can get past it. <laughs> Whew, I'm okay. It's all right. Like I work out. I try to eat healthy. I even do like a hit workout with Kendall on Peloton fairly consistently. Yet there's someone that can eat Mr. T's donuts, sit on the couch and binge watch Stranger Things and drink cups of fat for fun and still skinny as a rail. So I don't know what that's about, right? Anyone else out there with me? Just doing the right thing and everybody else, right? Okay, okay, okay. But I know those are silly. I know those are silly examples, but there are also serious things in our life that we suffer for when it comes to doing what's right. And what's crazy, though, is that it's becoming really hard to actually pin down what is right. The line between right and wrong has become so blurred in our society and never has there been so many opinions and varying opinions on what should be done or what should not be done. It's because we're living in a morally relative society where anything goes, which means that the moral target seems to move on a daily and hourly, if not minute-by-minute basis for what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So how do we know what's right? And more importantly, is it important for us to suffer for what's right, or is it better just to go with the flow like everybody else? Well, one of Jesus' disciples, his name is Peter. He actually answers this best in 1 Peter chapter 2. He would say, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So Peter is clear that we need to be willing to suffer for what is right. And we're to do this not to be tough or stubborn or better than someone else, but because of what Jesus has done for us already. I love what Peter says when he says that we are, should follow in his steps. So we are to follow in Jesus' steps because he is our example of what it looks like to suffer for what is right. And if this is true, that we're to follow in his steps, then as Christians, we must also be striving for what is right in the face of suffering. And how we do that and how we focus on Jesus as we do that is actually what we're going to be taking a look at in 2 Timothy 2 today. So if you'll jump with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's start in the first part of verse 14 where he says, keep reminding God's people of these things. Paul starts off this section of this letter to Timothy to remind him of certain things he should do, things that are good, things that are right as a follower of Jesus Christ. But before we get too far down that road, we have to remember the point of not only Paul's ministry or Timothy's ministry, but actually of our ministry as a follower of Jesus Christ. And the point of our mission, of our ministry, is to share Jesus, the gospel of Jesus with the entire world. And so if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're not sure about the Bible, not sure about any of this faith stuff, here's what I want to do. I just want to play my hand for you. I'm going to lay all the cards out on the table and tell you that that's exactly what a Christian should be called to do. It's not to be snooty. It's not to think that we're right all the time. It's not to act like we're better than everyone else. No, no, no. Our job is to share the love of Jesus with the world. 
After all, if we believe what we believe, that Jesus, what Jesus says, wouldn't you expect us to want to share and do anything we could to share the gospel with you? Jesus actually tells us it was not something he asked us to do, but it was something he commanded us to do. Matthew 28, we get to read what's called the Great Commission. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. That wasn't an ask, that was a command. So as followers of Jesus, we are to seek what is right while also remembering the heart of our mission, and that is to reach the world that is far from God and share the love of Jesus with them. But to do that, we have to be careful, careful that we present ourselves in the right way, that we conduct ourselves in the right way, all so that we can earn the right to tell them what is right about Jesus. And that's why Paul continues in the rest of verse 14. He starts off by saying, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only runs, ruins those that listen. Now, I do think it's pretty interesting that Paul would pretty much start this section of scripture to Timothy by saying, listen, I don't want you getting into a war of words with people. And notice the, the tense of the word up here, this word warn, that's present tense. So that means constant, means active, it means ongoing. He's saying, I'm going to warn. And Paul isn't specific about the words that are being said in Timothy's time, nor is he even clear about the nature of the words that are being said. But what he does say is that whatever they're saying is ruining those who listen. They have no value. It's ruining those who listen. In fact, what's happening is it's, it's causing their ears to be quiet, their ears to shut, to shut down. And more importantly, it's ruining the witness that they have for Jesus in the moment. And I just have to tell you this, church, both in person and online, that what Paul just said here might as well have just been ripped from the front page of the newspaper or your Facebook feed. Because my fear is that in our passion to be right, Christians may be damaging the eardrums of those people far from God. That we will stand on our digital soapboxes and we'll argue back and forth with each other and we enter into debates that are more dependent on the strength of our Wi-Fi network than the strength of the substance of what we're talking about. We're quarreling, to use Paul's words. And you should know that as we quarrel, those on the outside looking in on us are not amazed by our theological argumentation, but they are disgusted by how argumentative we are. Because guys, we, and when we act like this, just so you know, we're no different than anybody else. We aren't. And as Christians, we are supposed to be different. So I want us to consider this as we wrestle with this today, that we can be right in what we're saying, but very wrong in how we say it, right? Now, I said it before, sometimes we suffer for what is right because we've brought it unnecessarily onto ourselves, but that's what Scott's story is all about, right? But, but sometimes we suffer because of the attitude and the approach that we take in sharing what we believe to be right with other people. So to be the most effective for sharing Jesus with others, we need to make sure that we have humility, that we have grace, that we have love, just like he did. In other words, our words should not be used to prove we're right, but to represent Jesus the right way. That's what we should use them for. Which is why what Paul says next is so very important in verse 15. Verse 15, he says this, do your best to represent yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul tells Timothy, listen, I don't want you to be ashamed of Jesus at all, but rather I want you to handle that responsibility correctly. And I really like the fact that he says, do your best, 
do your best. Now, that phrase, do your best, is actually one Greek word, and that Greek word is pronounced spudazo, spudazo. Now, spudazo means to do something with diligence and urgency. So Paul's saying, I want you to have urgency in what you're doing. I want you to have spudazo. That Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness does need to go to a dying world. But hey, make sure you do it correctly, diligently. Make sure you do it correctly. Make sure you don't have this urgency, such an urgency to be right that you forget about the relationship. Gang, let me just tell you something. When we talk about knowing your one, that one person that you're trying to have a relationship with, share Jesus with, and connecting with them, it is so important to have a relationship with them. Guys, they're not your project. They're a person that they're your friend. They're somebody that you care about. So make sure when you talk to them about Jesus or invite them to church, would you do so with, in a way that would respect them and impact them at the same time? Have it come from a place where you actually care for them and desire them to know your story about Jesus first so that they might have a story about Jesus themselves. And I'll tell you how we get to that. And the way that we start with is by having community around us, other Christians, that's why growth groups are so important. That's why I love my six o'clock morning growth, growth group on Sunday. A bunch of guys get together before church starts. I love those guys. We're living life together. And, and, and then we also need to be praying to God, praying to God to give us wisdom and opportunity to be able to see rightly for what he would want us to say. And then honestly, the other thing, we need to read our Bible. Yeah, we, we got we, we to let, the, the, let the, the truth of God embed itself in our life. So that by doing that, we would know what is right and we know what's wrong without any question at all. So we need to think of that to handle the word of truth correctly, we must know God's truth personally. We must be people that open up this book, not just on Sunday or not just on Thursday, but daily so that we can know what God did for us, what he wants for us, and what we're called to do. We need to stay committed to reading God's word. It'll never be a waste of your time, by the way. It'll actually bring you closer to God. It'll show you what is right and what is good in him. Uh, but then Paul, he kind of has this like moment, almost like a relapse where he does a kind of ping pongs back to something that he's already talked about. He comes back to a familiar thing, which by the way, uh, Bible tip for you, anytime the Bible repeats itself on a topic, you should really, really, really pay attention to it. It's a really good thing to do. Also pay attention to exclamation points in there. Those are another good thing. But anytime you see a repeat, you should say, hang on, this is probably important. Listen to what Paul repeats in verse 16. He says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them is Hymenaeus and Fallacious who have departed from the truth. I'll tell you this firsthand as somebody that experiences this, that one of the nastiest, destructive, evil things in this world that will destroy people Families, friends, churches, is gossip. It's gossip. It's this behind-the-back talk that creates deep grooves of pain in people, destroys trust, destroys relationships altogether. And here's why. Gossip is never innocently impersonal. It is always intentionally personal. Eleanor Roosevelt once said this. She says that, um, that great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, but small minds, they discuss people. Gossip is consciously or unconsciously destroying someone's character or life by the words that we share when they're not present. It is weak. It is passive-aggressive. It is a sneak attack on someone who is unable to defend themselves, and it robs them of their life. And when that happens, 
Paul says, yeah, that spreads like gangrene. Now, if you're not familiar with that, maybe you're not in the medical field at all, let me just explain what gangrene is to you. It is when there is death to body tissue in your body as a result of lack of blood flow or an infection. And it can get so bad that they actually have to start amputating parts of your body to stop the infection so you won't die. Welcome to 1224 on a Sunday. You're welcome. Enjoy your lunch, right? A little gangrene for you, right? Disgusting. It's disgusting. But Paul is saying that is what gossip does to the body of Christ. It slowly robs it of its blood flow of love and grace and trust and truth that it needs to survive on. Instead, it slowly kills it and it makes us amputate one body part at a time. Paul says that cannot happen. Destroying a person is not right. It is the exact opposite of what a believer should be about because we should be bringing life to people, not taking life. And and Paul would explain why. Jump down to verse 19. In verse 19, it says, it says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. He's very clear. He, He says, when we know what is right, we're standing on a brand new foundation. And that foundation is created this way. That the first thing we realize is that we understand who Jesus is. We've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. This means that we understand that we are broken because of our sin. Our sin deserves death. We see Jesus as the only way to be forgiven from that sin. And so we turn to him and ask him to be the Lord of our life. In essence, very simply, we've said, hey, God, you're right, I'm wrong. And after we've done that, God, you're right and you're wrong. Do you know what we do after that? After we believe in Jesus, we live as though we believe that. Like we choose to follow what's right and what is good and what is holy in Jesus and not our old life. Paul would actually articulate it this way. He would say, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel, be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone able to teach and not be resentful. Now, now Paul uses this word, this four-letter word, flee, quite a bit in his writings. He'll use it as an accent quite a bit. He'll say, flee idolatry, flee, flee sexual immorality, flee sin in general. But here in 2 Timothy, he says, flee the evil desires of youth. Those petty, snarky desires where we have to always be right and everybody else is dumb compared to us. Because let's face it, when we're, when we're young, we always think we're right, don't we? Like, we? like our parents are morons. They have no idea what they're talking about. Am I right? That is until what happens? You become an adult. Yeah. And you get a J-O-B. You start paying bills and you find out who PG&E really is. You know, you start to get some kids in your life. And then all of a sudden you have that moment where you tuck your tail between your legs. You make that phone call to your mom and dad and you say, I'm so sorry. Right? You were right. I'm a bonehead. Right? We've done it. If you haven't, it's coming. Right? It's coming. But in the pursuit of what is right, we have to move past the childish and embrace what God says is right. And look at the dichotomy that Paul is trying to create here. He says, I want you to flee and I want you to pursue. He says, I want you to flee childish stuff, flee evil things, flee quarrels, flee foolish things. 
Oh, and don't, don't think I'm going to rush past the fact that Paul just said that godless chatter and foolish talk is stupid. <laughs> right? His word, not mine. All right? Easy. Right? Love is honesty. But it's true. In our desire to always be right no matter what, we say stupid things. Not godly, not honoring, not edifying, not uplifting, not kingdom-minded, not right. We say stupid, childish things, and we do stupid things. But instead, Paul says, I want you to grow up, and I want you to pursue other things, right things, righteousness, love, peace. Did you remember reading where he said that we're supposed to be kind to everyone? Come on, Paul, everyone, really, everyone says, be teachable. It says, don't hold grudges. And you might look at that list and say, you know, that, that kind of makes sense, you know? That list probably could be in a self-help book somewhere at Barnes & Noble, and you probably would read it. But then there seems to be this, like, tag on at the end of it. It's like Paul's trying to slip one past us to see if we're actually paying attention. But if you really think about it, what he says is not a tag on to a message. It actually might be the actual message. Because in his list of things that we should pursue, he says, along with those who call on the Lord out of a what? Out of a pure heart. So what this means is that as we're pursuing the right, the good, the godly things, we do so so that we can be an example to others so that they can then call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. So that they can see in our lives why we choose the right things over the other things. Also, we can point back to Jesus as the reason that we do it. See, it always comes back to Jesus. It always comes back to the gospel of Jesus. So if we boil this down to its simplest form, this is really what we're talking about life. That a life following Jesus flees what is wrong and pursues what is right. It seems so simple, but yet it's very complex, isn't it? We do that, and we, and we do this, not so we can stand on our moral high ground and tell everybody that they're wrong and that we're right, but so that we can tell other people the good news about Jesus in our life. And, and, and this doesn't come through debates, and it doesn't come through uh, telling somebody about right and wrong. Do you know what it comes through? It comes through love. Listen, listen to how Paul describes this in verses 25 through 26. He would say, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Gang, this might be one of the hardest things to do in our world today, to disagree with someone who thinks that they're right, but to do so with a gentle spirit. Isn't it just true that most people you want to refuse to have anything to do with somebody that thinks differently than you. You'll nuke the relationship if at the first sign of a dissonance between you two. Because you'll do it all the time. But listen, it's not right. Even if someone is wrong, we should be quick to be gentle in our response. Jesus' brother, James, he has some pretty, pretty specific words about this. In James chapter 2, he would say this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. And that means we do that even when it's hard. Because that gentleness we show is designated, is actually designed to lead other people to, to have repentance and ultimately know, as he would say, the, truth, the knowledge of truth. To have a relationship with Jesus is what Paul would say. 
And my friends, this all comes down to this one idea that I want you to stick with you this whole, whole week, that in order to find out what is right, we have to be willing to admit when we're wrong. We have to start off by saying, God, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm apart from you because of that. And I can only be made found right by having your forgiveness through your son in my life. Only then can we stand on the right side of suffering, on the right side of eternity with him. Because when we suffer for what is right, did you know we're actually suffering in the name of Jesus? Listen again what uh, the Bible would tell us. If you flip over back to... um, to 2 Peter, we're going to, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for, for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Paul would tell us in the book of Galatians, he would say, let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. He says, don't give up. Keep doing what's right. Keep doing what's good. But keep in mind the bigger picture that you're trying to show people about Jesus by the way you live your life. So, so, so what do we do with this anyway? Every week we want to try to give you something to, to tangibly take with you. We call them tag your moments. So maybe this week you need to, to go back and reread 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Maybe that's something that you could do to tangibly work on. Maybe you need to do this. Maybe you need to ask God where you're, you're, where you're putting being right ahead of other people. Might be a hard one. But then this last thing is a new one. Maybe visit the, the share your story page. Because everybody has a story. You have one, I have one. And these last few weeks, we've been watched how God has been showing up, even in the midst of suffering with different people in our community, in our church. And so sharing your story is a simple and is, power, is a powerful way to tell people about Jesus in your life. So whether you're just like starting your faith journey or you've been doing it for a really long time, we'd love to hear what God's doing in your life. So we've created a place where you can actually share your story. You can visit crossroadsgrace.org story, and you can let us know what God's doing in your life. And, and if you're not sure where to start, like our team's got a great, some resources that are there, some tools that you can help. See if you just click on that link or click on it in your app, you'll be able to see it more there. And as I said earlier, the secret to Simposco is that truly godly suffering is not done alone. It's done with other people. So we would love to be able to hear your story by going to share your story. It's crossroadsgrace.org story and share it there. And, and, I, and I know you're probably thinking, you're probably, well, well, you're a pastor. You don't probably suffer at all. You probably got this whole thing licked and figured out, you do know what I do for a living, right? You, you know, like I, I stand up here and, and virtually a lot of weeks say, well, you're wrong and you need to change it. That it's not the most exciting job, the most palatable job for most people. But listen, I love it. I love it. The hard part though is I don't even always do what I tell you to do because it's hard for me too. I don't do the right. I screw up all the time, especially when it's like going on the right side of being right. I'll give you an example. Here's a story. I don't know why all my stories have to deal with umpires right now, but they just do. So we just deal with it. I was coaching in a game a few weeks ago. We were in like a championship game of a, of a tournament my kids were in. And, and uh, all of a sudden, one of my assistant coaches comes up and says, man, that, that umpire is like, oh, what, what happened? He says, man, he says, he hates umpiring our games. He's like, well, why do you hate umpiring our games? He asks. He says, well, because of that guy right over there. And he's pointing at me. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, why do you hate him? He's like, I really... He's a great guy. He's a pastor in town. He's a great guy. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the problem is I hate umpiring his games because anytime I make a mistake, I know that he's going to know the right rule because he knows every rule and he's right all the time. Yeah. 
Yeah, to the point where in the middle of the game, he's texting his dad, who's a Pac-12 umpire, to see if what I said was right. And every time he texts back that I'm right. So this dude hates me, right? Right now, great for baseball. You want that in baseball. Terrible for relationships to do that. Terrible. So here's what I, I know. I realize that in a room this size, and those people that might be joining us right now, I realize that there might be marriages right now that are hurting because of your need to be right all the time. That there might be relationships that are suffering because you can't admit that you're wrong. That there are friendships that have been fractured because of this, the tension of being right. And there might be people in your life that you weren't able to share who Jesus was because your rightness got in the way of your relationship. And so what I just want to let you know is that God still loves you, Jesus still forgives you, that you can get on the right side of right, but it starts by admitting, hey God, I'm wrong. I want to be right with you, and I want you to show me how I can share the love of your son Jesus with others without having to sacrifice relationship to do it. So all I want to do as we close our time today together is just pray for you and pray that God would work in your life wherever it might be, whether online or in person. So don't log off and don't take off. I just want to pray for you and allow you to be able to reach out to him so you can get on the right side of right. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray just as we close our service today. And so, Father, I just, I just ask right now that you would be with us. I just pray that you would just in this room and online, Father, just be with us and help us to to embrace what you have called us to do, and that is to, to really flee from all the childish stuff and to embrace you. But as we embrace this truth, this rightness that is found in the gospel, help us not to be the type of people that are looking down on others or feel as though we are, we are, we are higher or better than someone else. Would you, would you help us to remember that relationship needs to be important and that we need to earn the right to be able to have to really share about Jesus and that I pray for marriages right now where we're having to be right has really fractured things I pray for relationships where not admitting that you're wrong has hurt things I pray right now for those that might feel as though there's a tension in somewhere in their life right now because of this topic and what I just pray right now is that maybe there needs to be a lunch where we just say man I, I, I need to ask for your forgiveness maybe we need to text somebody right after this service and say hey I'm sorry I was wrong Maybe there needs to be the beginning of some reconciliation. And God, I just know you'll do that for them. I pray your spirit, I pray your son on them, and that they would be just overwhelmed with your love and your grace as they do so. And that we could look with eyes that are full of grace and mercy and forgiveness, because those are the eyes that looked on us through your son Jesus. And help us to reflect that just as you did for us. Help us now as we, as we log off or as we take off and go about our day. May our heads be held high. May we remember what you've done for us. And may we do something with what you've heard, of what, what you've told us today, today, to do today. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Tag your it. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.